Beyond Masculinity, Essays by Queer Men on Gender and Politics. I'm editor Trevor Hoppe. You're about to hear an essay from this collection, A Single Problem, written and recorded by the author Jason Diltz. Log on to our website at www.beyondmasculinity.com to find more essays like this one by other queer male writers, as well as to comment on the one that you're about to hear. Thanks for listening, and enjoy a single problem. For years, I had a single problem. From the moment I stepped out of the closet and admitted to myself that I was gay, I immediately began to feel insecure about not having a man in my life as a romantic partner. What began as a simple adolescent insecurity developed into a complex as I grew older into early adulthood. The older I got, the more deficient I felt for not having someone to love me. I was excelling academically in college, building a solid and successful career in politics, and establishing and developing very meaningful friendships. I had it all, or at least as much as anyone in their early 20s could expect to have. Yet I felt as though my life was lacking in some way. No matter how good life was, this problem, this single problem, persisted. I assumed that it would go away the minute I found someone to love me. All of my insecurities about my life, my looks, and my place in the world would be fixed the moment Prince Charming came in and swept me off my feet. Like so many young girls find themselves doing, I was waiting on the fairy tale narrative to give meaning to my life, as if a life without love was a life devoid of this alleged meaning. Never mind that I enjoyed my college classes and soaked up all the new theories and concepts I was learning. Never mind that I loved my job managing and directing a local grassroots political party. Never mind the very deep and connected friendships I had built over the years. Never mind the fact that I actually liked living by myself, alone, in my eclectically decorated and perfectly organized apartment. I was convinced that all these elements that made up my version of the good life were insignificant and meaningless. Under the ever-anticipated glow of love, I expected all my securities to just melt away. What a fucking crock. Looking for and finding love, it turns out, isn't quite so easy. The romance narrative, found in movies, books, and magazines, is built on the idea that you're no one until someone loves you. Without love, life isn't even worth living. This trope is constantly reinforced by social institutions, families, peers, and most of all, popular culture. Most of us are taught unquestionably from a very young age that getting married and having children is something of a rite of passage into becoming a full-fledged grown-up. Our society constructs rituals and celebrations around this idea and exalts couplehood above all other forms of existence. It begins when we are young, when middle school dances and later high school proms are highlights of the academic year for many teenagers. Dating is all the rage among young peer groups as adolescent pairing off often equates popularity and self-validation. This celebration of coupledom continues into adulthood when married people are thrown lavish parties to celebrate their dual partnerships and when parents are rewarded with showers of gifts for their ability to reproduce. The celebration of couples is everywhere. Couples get parties, single people get pity. Along the way, we are constantly reminded by popular culture that single equals deficient. 
There's Celine Dion, who docilely sings, I'm everything I am because you loved me, suggesting that all of our accomplishments are the result of someone else having romantic feelings for us. Avril Lavigne also doesn't seem to be able to accomplish much on her own, at least not according to her song, When You're Gone, as she confesses that when her lover is away, I can hardly breathe. I need to feel you here with me. Jessica Simpson seems to think she can't even stand up without a man, as she confesses in the lyrics of her song, With You. I can let my hair down. I can say anything crazy. I know you'll catch me right before I hit the ground. With nothing but a t-shirt on, I never felt so beautiful. Baby, it's I do now. Now that I'm with you. Leanne Rhymes takes the cake, though, in How Do I Live, lamenting that she simply cannot physically live without her man. How do I live without you? I want to know. How do I breathe without you? If you ever go. How do I ever, ever survive? How do I, how do I, oh, how do I live? We can only hope that Ms. Rhymes' current relationship will never dissolve, because she will apparently be dead if it does. While these over-the-top lyrics might be dismissed as mere examples of a much larger genre of sappy pop songs, they work in tandem with society at large to reinforce the notion that a single person is not of equal value to a couple. Gradually, we learn and internalize the notion that what we accomplish on our own pales in comparison to what we accomplish by falling in love and tying the proverbial knot. I tacitly adopted this ideology for years without realizing it. Throughout my late teens and early twenties, I developed intense crushes on a handful of guys that I desperately wanted to turn into romantic partnerships. None of them showed any real substantive interest in me, though. Yet I hoped that by pining after them, somehow they would see just how great of a guy I really was. When efforts to catch the current object of my desire failed, I resorted to looking anywhere I could for companionship. I tried internet chat rooms, online dating services, gay social organizations, and gay dance clubs. I didn't find anyone who interested me in any of those places, though I did manage to snatch up a few dates. One of these dates was with a guy named Kevin, who I met on an internet chat room in 2005. Kevin was an accounting major and worked in the business administration department of a local meat processing company. He was extremely attracted, and I was excited about the possible relationship that could develop between the two of us. That is, until he started talking. His job seemed extremely boring to me, and he had absolutely no passion for it. Work was just something he did to make money. He thought politics was frivolous. He also thought being an activist was futile. I've never understood why people thought they could change the world, he once confessed to me. You're just one person. Accept your place and make the best of it. Stop worrying about things you can't control. As for his own hobbies and interests, he was pretty passionate about making money, he liked to party on the weekends, and he spent a lot of time at the dance clubs. He didn't open up much about his personal life. His style was more surface. He wasn't interested in having deep conversations about art, literature, or world affairs. I had a hard time identifying with him. He didn't get me at all. Which was made perfectly clear when he referred to a women's studies class I was taking at the time and talking to him very passionately about as a lesbian class. About the only thing we had in common was that we were both gay. Sharing the same sexual orientation is not exactly grounds for engaging in a lifelong love affair. Needless to say, Kevin and I soon parted ways. A few months later, there was Sean, 
a tall, dark, and handsome nurse, whose body filled out a pair of scrubs in a way that made me want to instantly orgasm. We had an immediate physical connection. Unfortunately, everything else about him made me want to recoil. First, there were his politics. He was a member of the NRA, frequently complained about the ugly, uncouth black kids in the neighborhood, and didn't understand why gays were always complaining about not having any rights. Like Kevin, he thought politics was a stupid, meaningless game, and that feminism was just a crush for people who couldn't get laid. Then there were his interests. He was an avid sports fan, loved to go hunting, and had an affinity for action films and slasher flicks. As someone who has to be reminded that the Super Bowl is a football game, loathes the thought of handling a gun or shooting anything, and has my TiVo permanently set to record every zany, envelope-pushing, obscure indie movie on the independent film channel, it was hard for me to find common ground. Despite the fact that we didn't relate to each other at all, my self-worth was so low that I continued to see him for an agonizing month. Obviously, a big part of dating is getting to know the other person, and there are lots of facets that make up who we are as individuals. To that end, I invited him to my favorite restaurant on one of our dates. I wanted to take him somewhere that was quintessentially me. We ate at the Green Mill, a bar and grill that had what I considered the best chicken wings in town, and a place myself and my best friends had spent many nights in in high school, talking, laughing, connecting, and generally enjoying each other's company. More than the food, it was the memories that made this restaurant special. During dinner, I recounted stories about my friends, our nights out, and why this particular place was so special to me. But I could tell he was bored and uninterested. He also complained about the food. After dinner, I took him for a walk downtown along the river. This was another special place for me, because I loved the scenery and had many good memories of time spent there with friends, as well as by myself, reading or studying for classes while I was in college. Despite my attempts to explain its significance, he remained underwhelmed. He was barely even listening. Despite this, I wanted to give him a chance. On our next date, I asked him to take me to some of his favorite places. For dinner, he took me to Denny's. Now, I'll confess that I am not the biggest fan, but I wanted to get to know him, and supposedly this place was going to tell me something about who he was. I tried to stay open-minded. When our dinner conversation began to lag, I finally asked him what it was about Denny's that made it so special and why he had chosen it. I was hoping for a nostalgic story about late-night dinners here with friends, or memories of time spent eating here with his family. But as it turns out, he just liked their onion rings. Well, I could appreciate his taste for fried food, but I couldn't help but feel that a relationship wasn't exactly built on shared side dishes. Our romantic night outs continued with a baseball game, where he said we could spend time together. Instead, I spent most of the game listening to him cheer and holler, only briefly separated by his futile attempts to answer by ignorant questions about what was going on in the field. After the game, he capped it all off with a nice night at home, watching a slasher flick with me and eating beef jerky. That was the last night we ever slept together. Despite my repeated attempts to find it, love, it seemed, was rather elusive. I left these dead-end, haphazardly, unromantic encounters, feeling as though there was something wrong with me, and wondering why I couldn't find a guy with whom I could connect with. While out on dates, I actually found myself fantasizing about being at home, alone, on my couch and watching whatever TV-to-DVD series I was obsessing over at the moment. Even the few moments I did enjoy, I still thought to myself, albeit sheepishly, 
kind of like being alone. I had to question, though, was my desire for singlehood truly authentic, or had it been self-manufactured as a survival mechanism? When I accepted being gay, I had to accept the fact that I would never have a family. Marriage for same-sex couples was a distant dream, and I knew that adopting children would be a long, arduous, and expensive process, complicated even further by the fact that there would be two men involved. Now, I understood that I could have a partner and make a special family, but those terms seemed condescending. I wanted to be embraced and accepted. Along with that, I wanted to be able to use the same language to describe my relationship that everybody else got to use. Marriage has certain social connotations that bring with it a level of respect to couples who enter into those legal nuptials. I knew I would never have the real deal, and my partnership with another man would never be accepted and celebrated like my heterosexual peers' marriages. Then came a magical day in late fall of 2003. The Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts had declared that preventing same-sex couples from getting married was both discriminatory and unconstitutional. In an instant, a new door opened I never could have imagined. Writing for the court's majority, Justice C.J. Marshall exclaimed that, without the right to marry, or more importantly, the right to choose to marry, one is excluded from the full range of human experience and denied full protection of the law for one's avowed commitment to an intimate and lasting human relationship. For me, it was the right to choose to marry that was most important. Although it was limited to just one state, and despite the fact that not a single state has granted full marriage rights yet since that decision, I can now choose to be married. It was very important for LGBT people to have this choice. All of us want to know that the circumstances of our lives are a result of having made our own decisions that brought us to the place we are in the present. Absent a choice, it is easy to categorize as deficient and less than desirable a life we can never really have. Having access to marriage meant that this idea was now open for me to explore, and for a time I craved and hungered to live that life everyone else around me got to live for so long. I looked for more dates and tried out more men, hoping that I would find the magical one who would whisk me away to the mythic land of Massachusetts where we could live happily ever after. Alas, my magic man never came, and I stayed grounded in my home, the flat heartland of Kansas. I had the right to choose, but no one seemed to want to choose me. Throughout my quest for companionship, my aborted attempts at relationships, and later my rabid desire to exercise my new found civil right to marry, there persisted a constant belief that it was my fault no one loved me. I assumed that there must be something internally deficient within me that repelled people away and made me of no desire to other men. Ultimately, it was my body where I laid the most blame, and over time I grew to hate it. That hatred eventually manifested itself in the form of an eating disorder, and for an entire year I was quite literally starving for love. I thought that if I changed my body and became thin, my luck would change. I succeeded in losing weight. 80 pounds over 12 months, to be specific. But even though the new, lean, and slender me took up less space, I still wasn't able to find someone who wanted to make room for loving me. As my 24th birthday approached, I found myself increasingly unhappy and less fulfilled than ever. I discounted all the wonderful things that I did have in my life, which by this time included a college degree, a great paying job, a nice apartment, and more friends than I could have ever imagined. 
and I pinned all of my desires on the one thing that I didn't possess. I agonized at the thought of another year passing without love, and bemoaned the idea that the next year could possibly be a repeat of all years prior. When my best friends took me out to dinner for my birthday that evening, I wasn't really in a mood to celebrate. I was too perplexed by my single problem. There's a funny thing about friendship, though. Sometimes it's the one thing you have that can bring you back to yourself. That night at dinner, after rehashing my standard monologue about how meaningless my life was without a man, my friends Edie and Mary, firmly and assertively, pointed out that I was missing the point about what mattered in life. There I was, having dinner with two people I had known since I was in high school. We had gone through ups and downs, crazy, angst-ridden adventures, personal growth experiences, parental conflicts, friendship drama, and shared just about everything with each other that people can share. We'd kept our friendship together through good times and bad, and knew each other better than we knew anyone else. Yet I refused to recognize that the best of me was seated at that table. Who I am, the me that makes me, is forever infused in these two people, and that's a powerful concept, more potent than the idea that another person's love completes you. It didn't all come together that night, and I had many more months to go in my journey but I gradually began to understand my real problem, and it had nothing to do with a personal deficiency. I realized that my problem would not be solved by a boy's affections, nor would it be solved by dieting myself to death. My problem was that I didn't truly love and value myself. I had no self-affirming identity. I had a world full of joy and satisfaction in both my personal and professional life that I had worked very hard to create. Yet I refused to acknowledge just how powerful the things of our own creation can be. I bought into the paradigm that love completes and that coupling is an essential part of the human experience. Finally, I began to question long-held assumptions and beliefs about my life, and in doing so, I became liberated. I became free to appreciate all that I did have and began to evaluate my life in terms of my own happiness, and not by society's cultural norms and standards. My single problem wasn't that I was single. It was that I devalued all the beauty that being single brings. There is so much to celebrate about the single existence, and it's about time we take notice. More people are living single than ever before. Many delay having marriage for quite some time, and some are foregoing it altogether. Even many of those who do marry will spend at least part of their life not in a romantic relationship, and they ought to realize that those years can be valuable and enjoyable. The joys of living in a world on your own terms and having a life that is unconstrained by the whims, desires, or demands of anyone else can amount to unparalleled happiness. The valuing of your own accomplishments, the education you claim, the career you forge, the community ties you build, and the good you do for other people, the enriching you do for society, all of that is a splendor like none other. The ties that bind you through friendship and the unparalleled satisfaction you get by having another person understand, value, and love you for who you are, and conversely, the feelings of belonging that you get from having these sentiments from other people is an extraordinarily beautiful experience. Once I learned to value all of this, all the good that comes with being single, I realized that I no longer had a single problem. In fact, I had no real problem at all. All those years I hungered for love, both figuratively and literally, I was really just starving for an identity. I was craving for someone to validate my existence by loving me. 
I was looking to find the person I am inside another human being. I was attempting to scapegoat the significance of my own path in life by finding someone else to give it meaning. Before this unyielding, uncomfortable longing could go away, I had to ultimately realize just how significant I am as an individual. Finally, my identity is rooted in me, in all the good things and good people that make my life worth living. I can grow to love a man romantically, and that can be a beautiful thing, if I want to, and if I want it to be. We could get married in Massachusetts, or any other land that will take us as full and participating members of society, if I decide that I want to choose that as my life for myself. Regardless, I'll always have me, a solo, self-respecting, uninhibited individual. I have a lot of love to give to many people, and in many ways. However, I was born into this world one person, single. I shouldn't feel ashamed for living my life that way. I should feel proud. Jason's essay, log on to beyondmasculinity.com to comment on his piece, download a PDF version of it, or to find other essays by queer men on gender and politics. Thanks to Andre Cavalcante for composing and recording the music for this and other Beyond Masculinity recordings. And thanks to you for listening.